my sinful heart, if it was fully commanded me, which is not, thank, thank God, but I, uh, I thought, oh, I'm going to be with God, you know, predisposed to some good outcome. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't need an A, I'm okay with partial credit, just like school, you know. Uh, but thankfully, we don't, we're not under that system. There's no uh, free predisposition there, which is entirely in God's system because of the gulf and holiness between him and us. So Peter reminds us kind of fighting against that natural tendency uh, to work our understanding of fairness. Uh, justification is completely undeserved and based entirely on who got this. So what happens in that justification when our sins are wiped away and still have that sin nature that we still wrestle with? I'm not trying to say that. But we are completely justified that sins are no longer held against us. We're born again, is what Peter said. It's a powerful language. This is sort of the meat of this first half, being born again. It's kind of a, a weird thing to say. You know, the Bible talks about being dead. You know, trespasses and sins, which is inherently unrecoverable. We can't recover from physical death, of course. Or we recover from a spiritual death on our own. And Gordon is similarly powerful when talking about how radical that change is. Uh, we're rescued from, the, from our sins and from God's wrath. And the thing, the, the way that God, through Peter, chooses to describe it is so powerful that he thinks we should just refer to it as an entire new life. He's consistently throughout the Bible that your life as a believer has started all over again from the beginning. You know, I even sometimes would like my life to start over again like last week. You know, and I could think of different things I would say, or like, man, I wish I saved more money a couple years ago, or anything like that. But it's so radical that we have an entire new life from the beginning. Major component of that, he puts love for him deep in our hearts, in the heart of every believer, that we're not perfect, that we still grow in that with time. Um, the that love is deep and motivating. Over the, over the long arc of our lives, we're growing in love. It would be, it should be a beautiful thing to say about every Christian, that at 60, 70, 80, we are more gentle, more fruitful, more oriented towards discipling others. You know? um, all of those things that are outpourings of what God has for the Christian life, um, because our overall purpose has now been sort of stated for us, that we love God more every day, we study, um, to come to know him better, we commune with him. I, uh, as a relatively young person, starting to feel old, but as a relatively young person, I used to think that was like a phase of life thing. Personally, God grew my faith a lot in college. And uh, it's a time when you're thinking so much about what you're going to do with your life. You know, what am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do with my life? You know? And, uh, and that has a couple of components. Like, what do you do with your days? Like, as a job. And what are the goals that you should be pursuing? You know, I don't know. I feel like I'm not the only person who has a little bit of a reckoning when you realize like your next goal has to go beyond like the next year of school or the next semester of classes. And uh, yeah, the students in the front are related with you super hard. And uh, it's, it's kind of hard. It's a little bit, I mean, traumatizing is definitely overstating it, but it's, it's, not, it's not simple. And um, I sort of learned from other people it's that it doesn't go away, and now I see that a couple years on college and stuff. That everyone is at least a little bit restless about, okay, am I doing the right things? Am I pursuing the right things? You know? So it kind of, it kind of changed from when I was in college, like, does God really want engineers? You know? And it sort of became like, okay, well, now that I am an engineer, 
am I actually using my days to serve God with my with my new life? And because um, he has put that put that love for me deep as a long, hopefully eighty year purpose, you know. Uh, and all other purposes and goals that I'm now trying to set as a young adult, like maybe I should be saving the future and planning my retirement or you know, trying to start a family or something. You know, all the things that you're supposed to do. All of those are subservient to God. It underpins every other goal and purpose. And we kind of make new ones through that Christian lens. And it is, it is comforting and satisfying to be working towards a purpose and to know what that is. Um, even though some of the sub ones aren't figured out. Um, but yeah, I know, for example, um, that God wants me to love him more every day, and I know that he wants me to study his word. And it's nice to know that the big one is checked off, per se. Uh, not that our sanctification or anything is by works either, but it is really comforting to know that he is always working in me, even though I'm not perfect, even though my faith wavers, even though I was so nervous about trying to find something that wasn't the gospel in the passage. Uh, but with our new life, we're always looking forward. And uh, sort of over the long mark, something entirely different than we were before. We don't return to our old life wholesale, although for a lot of people, came to Christ as adults, you know, some of those more tangible things hold on. Um, but it's not an event, it's an entire new life. Thanks to God illuminating our, our hearts to sin, um, doing away with that self-centeredness, although we still struggle with our sin nature, we're completely justified by his mercy, and we're restarted to a new life that is always looking forward with the constant deep satisfaction that we have in pursuing him. So now Scott is going to talk about the second half. All right, Tristan, thanks so much for bringing us that half of our text today. Uh, as I was sitting there, I was just singing our songs this morning. I was in the back, and we were uh, talking back and forth, and you come to the front, we start singing these songs, and um, we were singing that one song, Come Up the Door on Bended Knee, and I was behind Jeff Jablonski, and I was like, man, we should have changed that this morning to Come the Door on Brand New Knees. <laughs> um, I thought that would be really nice stuff. We did. We left the traditional. If you're new at this this morning, uh, the man has two new knees. <laughs> and you can see him because he's wearing shorts at the end of November. <laughs> Love you, man. Okay, so here we are. We're back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, let me just read again the text for us that, that uh, Tristan started for us. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So on this first Advent Sunday, we're thinking through what are the gifts that he brings. The gift number one is that he brings the gift of hope. That's why we're here. He brings the gift of hope. Tristan has brought us so far through, number one, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because this is fundamentally a thing that God does in the gospel, is he makes us understand and appreciate the worth and wonder of who God is. And so Peter's Christian. Peter wasn't born a Christian. Peter is transformed, he's made, brought new life, and his heart emanates that. So he's blessing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
He brings us then to according to his great mercy. This is an issue. Salvation is an issue of God's mercy, not an issue of our inherent worth. Right? He's coming and doing something to us out of mercy because we don't have it. So we're always celebrating God's mercy. And if we are people of mercy, we're really happy to talk about it. And if we actually believe that, we don't hide it. Right? We, uh, we as grandparents and as parents and as friends, we actually intentionally dispel the myth that we are heroes. Because people look at us and say, hey, you're more moral than me. We're like, oh, let's, let's back that up, right? I'm dead like everybody else. God comes to me in mercy. And when we're parents and our kids look to us and go, oh, mom and dad are so great. We're like, oh, wait a second. Let's tell you about how mom and dad are not great. We're sinners. We're self-lovers. We're running away from God. He comes with mercy. And when we have grandkids do the same, we're always dispelling this myth of inherent worth and righteousness in us. And that we're always people under mercy. And people who are under mercy, and I had a discussion with a uh, believer this week, um, we're happy to tell the story that we are the greatly forgiven servant. We're not going to check you out anymore. We're going to embrace you and tell you, man, let me just tell you the great mercy and forgiveness that's happened to me. So according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Uh, another discussion this week, uh, un unconnected to this, was this language of born again, um, Nicodemus. In chapter 3 of John, you know, Sweet Nicky's having a conversation with Jesus on the slide, the nice one, hey, we know you're a great teacher, all that kind of stuff. And Jesus goes, don't you know, you should know that you have to be born again. He's like, born of what? Born of, uh, he starts asking biological questions about how do you get back into the womb of somebody, right? And Jesus is saying, fundamental Old Testament, New Testament, new birth has to happen. There has to be a new creation of God. And God does a new creation. And so when he justifies us, as Tristan is explaining perfectly, he's made us righteous judicially. He gives us a new heart, a new life. And it, it happens in a birth form. And we progressively, over the duration of life, look more and more like Jesus. In the words of our book of Romans, we are being conformed to the image of Jesus. And day one does not look like year 80 in that process. Day one, we come to life. Uh, there's an awareness of sin and an awareness of the gospel. We're swearing up the fact that God says, I love you. You are my son and you are my daughter and you are forgiven. But we don't know a whole lot else. All we know is just a tank of water and we climb into that thing demonstrating the fact that I'm new. And then he builds this look like him over the duration of our lives. We have this new life and this new life grows. And the growth of that new life is incredibly helpful to us to let us know that we're the real deal. If we don't grow, we're probably not the real deal. Growth in the new life demonstrates that. We then come in our text to this. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. To a living hope. The word to there, I mean, connect the dots here. You're born again for something, into something. Something that didn't exist before. So as he pointed out, we're given a new life, a new reality in us, um, a heart that doesn't perfectly love the Lord, but starts loving the Lord, right? a heart that is destined in that way. We get this new life that's given to us. And not only the new life given to us, but a new end, a new focus. So this idea of hope, we'll talk about one second, is an end focus. When God does his work in us and gives us a new life, we are, no longer, we are not only simply experiencing a new thing in our life, but we are people who look in a new way. And it's a way that didn't, wasn't there when we started our journey. It wasn't something that was true of us when we first started life. It's a new North Star. 
shall we say. So it says here, born to a living hope. So let's just skip the word living for a second. Let's just go to the word hope. Born to a hope. Um, some of you guys have been with us all the way through Romans, particularly through Romans 8. So what I'm going to say is going to maybe splash a little bit uh, recognizable to you. Uh, some of you guys haven't heard this, so I will just simply say this again. You have this word hope. The hope, word hope in the word in the New Testament is the word elpis. It's a unique word. And um, I think it's worthwhile us mentioning and thinking about it because um, in our English language, when we hear the word hope, um, it's something unlikely. It's an unlikely wish or desire. In the words of the great philosopher Lloyd Christmas, uh, when he asked, what are my odds? One in a hundred. The answer is given more like one in a million. And then he describes English modern hope where he goes, so you're telling me there's a chance. It's not a very likely chance, but it's a chance. And that's what English hope means to us. And I'm telling you, when you read the Bible the first time, that's what you interpret the word hope in the Bible. Kind of a chance. Unlikely chance. And it's the one word in all the English translations of the Bible that I think actually is the exact opposite insinuation of what the biblical word hope is. English concepts say it's not a very likely chance. Biblical concept is certainty. It's rock, solid certainty. The only thing missing is it hasn't happened yet. It's there. Now, just to geek out for you for a second, it's just for your Bible studies. When it's used as a noun, when it's used as a noun, it is certainty. When it's used in a verbal sense, as in hoping or set my hope, that is where uncertainty comes into it. Set your hope. That's where you are placing and waiting something. But there's a sense of uncertainty that comes to it. When it's used as a noun, we're called to a living hope. It is rock solid. Certainty. You and I are born again into a living hope, into something that will happen. I don't know if you're going to have lunch. I don't know if you're going to make it to the end of this day. But I do know that Jesus is there and he's coming back. That is certain. Your afternoon is not. It's something totally different than our predisposed thoughts to the concept, right? So he calls us this new living hope. I think I, I also want to encourage you when you see the word hope in the New Testament, auto uh, autocorrect serious to certainty. Just read the word certainty. It actually will convey the concept of biblical hope far better than the word ancient hope. So the issue comes to the fact that the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. Hebrew. New Testament's written in and we speak. Good. All right. So we're on that. Most of us. Uh, when we translate out of those languages, there's always a challenge of words, right? And, um, and our Greek and Hebrew words don't change. Well, maybe Hebrew is still spoken a little bit, and there's some, but old New Testament Greek doesn't change. That's old, old Greek. English does change. That's why if you pick up a copy of King James, a.k.a. King James, you may find that there's a lot of words in here like, I have no idea what that word means, or it means something totally different to me because our English language does change. Biblical hope has never changed. It's always been there. But our languages have changed since then. So the English concept of hope has shifted over time. So that's why the only word I would ever tell you in the New Testament that you might want to actually permanently Siri correct as you read it 
just the word hope and maybe replace it with the word certainty or some other concept that is not yet achieved but absolutely going to happen. Even, even if you use the word earnest expectation, that's still not strong enough for biblical hope. Biblical hope is it will happen. It will happen. So hope is an amazing thing, certainty, and the reason we, we come to that is because when you're trying to figure out what a word means in the New Testament, the number one helpful way to do that is to see how the word is used elsewhere in the New Testament. Read the context behind it all. We saw this happen in Romans 8, verse 20. It says, for creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. God hoped in this passage. And there's no uncertainty in God. God's like, I'm going to curse the earth, but shucks, I sure hope this works out in the end. That's not what God is doing. God has a plan. It's certain, right? So uh, just the context tells us that it's hope. But it really affects, too, how we read the impact of these verses. Consider Titus 2.1. Here it is with a traditional word of hope in it. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. But when we amp it up to its certainty, like it should be, it's this. In the certainty of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Biblical hope, better understood, is biblical certainty. It will happen. And it is more sure than anything the rest of this day that will happen to you in your lesser hopes and wishes. So the hope is an amazing thing. So when we're, called, when we're born again into a living hope, um, the last thing that you need to know about hope is not only is it a certainty, but it's a favorable certainty. It's one you want. It's not just taxes. Pretty much a certainty. Pretty much. Not so favorable, as some would say. Right? Not something you really want, but biblical hope is a certainty that you want. But in the scriptures, that hope is not favorable for everybody. So, 49 years ago, we little Scott Burns is born in the desert, right? And you're born, and in, in, in wherever you're born in the United States or around the world, you're born, and you are born without hope. But that hope exists. That hope is still coming, but it's not favorable towards you. So we wouldn't officially call it hope. It's just a certainty, but it's an unfavorable certainty. If people, the hope that's coming, if we are um, not clinging to Jesus, and for every one of us before we knew Jesus, that one coming it's not a favorable thing. Why? Because Jesus, when he's coming, he's coming to do the impossible. He is the savior of the world, but he's also the judge of the world. He comes shielding his people as he goes to war against all the, res- the insurrection against him. It's a twofer. Two things are happening at one time. Two amazing things. The saving and the judging of the world. He comes to do the impossible. He comes down to tear down the tree of the insurrection of sin, tear down every branch, rip up every part of this deceptive root system across this world, and sweep every leaf it has ever dropped on this planet away. That's how he's going to save. Shield us as he removes sin out of everything. And if you're born again, that coming is glorious hope and endless relief. But if you're not clinging to Jesus, um, that is not an issue of hope. That's an issue of horror. You want to be under the saving of Jesus. You don't want to be under the judging of Jesus. The judging of Jesus isn't Jesus simply saying, guilty. Biblical judging is, is the de- declaration of what is true and what will happen, but it's also him 
pulling it off himself, him executing the judgment over all things. He will remove sin. So he won't miss a thing. Not a moment that is a part of the assault on heaven, truth, love, and Jesus. And if, if anybody, if you, if me, um, anybody persists on partnering with the darkness in the rejecting of the word and worth of Jesus, he won't miss you. He will not miss you. He cannot miss you because he's liberating the world from darkness, its source, all of its agents and effects. But the good news of the gospel is this, if you own up to that. By God's grace, he comes to me when I'm younger and brings me the story of the gospel and exposes the fact that I am in darkness, I am in collaboration with this. And he brings my heart to a point of admitting it and owning it and repenting from it. God, I don't want to be part of this anymore. I don't want to be this this collusion against heaven and against Jesus and against truth and against life and against love. I don't want it anymore. I trust the work that Jesus did, that he came and that he died and he rose again. And it is the delight of that Savior, who is the hope, who is the coming one, to use the worth that he has gained through his life and through his death and resurrection to bring to himself those who are inherently dark, like me, and like most of us in this room. And if you have not repented from colluding with darkness and being part of darkness, you understand he is certain, but it's not a favorable certainty for you. It's a highly unfavorable certainty. But it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, you can hold to him and cling to his mercy. The one who is hope, the one who is coming, is forward-issuing mercy and saying, come to me, come be, rep- uh, come be forgiven, come be loved, come be light. We can live in repentance. We can live in this new life that God has given us through his mercy, and it's a beautiful thing. So the hope is coming, and the hope for all who call upon him is a favorable certainty. It truly is hope. It's what we look at that we have a future, and that future is coming, and that future is extremely, extremely good. It's gloriously certain because it rides on the back of our very alive Jesus who loves us. He's a living hope. That word says, calls us again um, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So why is it called a living hope? Because the hope is not necessarily a plan. The hope is a person. It's Jesus himself. How do we know that? It references his resurrection right there at the end. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here living recalls to our minds something even amazing that Jesus Christ genuinely did die for our sins and then genuinely did rise again from the dead and now lives. He's not just a spirit. He has a body. He came and resurrected and stood in his own body, a body that is then transformed and able to pass through walls and eat fish and do all kinds of amazing things. And he's coming back with that body for us. He did die, and he now is genuinely living. He actually did resurrect. And, but, but probably without fairness, our minds want to know sometimes, well, how do we know that he resurrected? Um, my question would be, well, what would be good enough for you? Do you need to touch him? Because if you need to touch him, we have pretty good makeup artists and all kinds of fake things that can fake that. Or what about a video? Well, that could be deep, deep faked, right? What about a photo? What about a picture? That could be photoshopped. What about a podcast? That can be edited. I mean, everything you can think of, honestly, there is no test that would really be satisfactory to you. Or about what about like um, 
I don't know, what about a favorite internet celebrity scientist or comedian who could time warp back and see it and then tell us with their full integrity and moral excellence of that I saw with my own eyes that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, if Joe Rogan said it, then it's good enough for me. Or if Tyson said it, then it's good enough for me. Or what about, what about, because it's not, by the way, that wouldn't work very well for you. It just wouldn't work. What about a, uh, what about a valid historian? What about, what about an eyewitness? Would that, would that be good enough? What about Josephus? Because he didn't love Jesus and spoke about Jesus and wrote about Jesus. Um, what, would it, what would you need for a firsthand credible witness, right? Um, would, it, would, it, would it suffice if they were like a firsthand witness and lots of them people believed it when they said it? Would that, would that be proving it to you? Probably not. Or what if, what, if, what if they made a mon- lot of money off it and it's successful? Would that prove it to you? Or, or what if they really dedicated their life to it? Or, or what if the people that did that were firsthand witnesses and they held to this story um, despite the loss of all things? What if they held to this story and lost all their money and lost their families and still held to that story? What if they were tortured to give up that story to betray it and they wouldn't give it up? What if they were killed? Um, it's an Eastern culture. What if they were shamed? What if a guy like Peter, in testifying that Jesus lived and died and rose again, what if he testifies and part of his testimony is not his honor but his shame? Because Peter doesn't look very good in the Gospels. And the, book, and the book of Luke and Mark are highly influenced by Peter. What would it take? What would it take? to be, find the resurrection of Jesus, a trustworthy thing. Jesus' resurrection was predicted by others long before his birth, the book of Isaiah. It was predicted by Jesus himself. He said, and tear down this temple, three days later, I'll, I'll resurrect it. And his followers didn't seem to pick up what he was saying. His enemies did. So this heard by the enemies. Um, so when he died, they were on guard. They set up a situation to like double check and make sure that this thing could not happen. And then when it did happen, they re-narrated it, they spread the lies, but then it goes on to be documented by hundreds of people who saw him living, saw him dead, saw him living again. Hundreds of people in full documentary form, affirmed by witnesses despite financial ruin, their own shame, torture, deaths, and lives dedicated to preserving and advancing it. And above all, God himself in the Bible claims that he is still testifying about that supernaturally as we read the words and accounts of it. As we read through the end of the Gospels, it is not just simply a human document. It's not simply a myth, and it's not simply a human true document. This is the documentation of the God of heaven communicating to the souls of men in the most uh, efficacious way to testify that he is there, and this is who we are, and that this is the hope of the world, that Jesus Christ came and lived and died, and that he genuinely rose. And the rising of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, is the linchpin that all of it rests on. In the, bo- in the book of 1 Corinthians 15, here's some of the argumentation. If you don't, not, I'm not just saying logically, I'm just saying biblically, it's the linchpin. And he says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. How, bi- how big is the resurrection? Everything. If, our, if it's not true, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we're even being found to mis- be represent- misrepresenting God. So if Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead, everything we're saying here is a lie. It's a malicious re- misrepresentation of God himself, according to Paul. Because we are testified 
This is, this is the words of Paul here. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have only of hope in this life, we are of all people are most to be pitied. If the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, we have nothing. And if the resurrection of Jesus did happen, which is the testimony of God and all these earthly witnesses, we have everything. Our hope is not just a myth. Our hope is certainty, and it's a living certainty. And the certainty has a name. The name is Jesus. The future, our resurrection is not just cognitive, being cognitively present with the Lord, but being brought back to the bodies, and he will resurrect us. And so when we see him eventually, he, we will, those of us who have passed, we will then be not only with him, but we will have resurrected bodies with him. So our living hope is actually the picture of our future. So what do we do with that? So Jesus is the good king. He comes and brings hope. He, we, we bless God because him through his great mercy has made us born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And what do we do with it? We tend it. We tend it. Now, I'm just going to admit this. This has been a long Thanksgiving weekend. We had family coming from all over town. We had multiple families showing up. And I love holidays. I really do. Um, for one of the reasons, just the way I'm geared, I love just to, I love to be a family. I do like to eat me some food. I like the rest. I like just the break of schedule, just like the, the strange peace and quiet. And because I'm a punk, um, and because of like this process of me growing in my walk with the Lord, one of the things I really wrestle with still is God giving me extra good things and me taking it out of his hand and running off to my room and closing the door, right? And the good things that God's given to me to really rejoice in him, I gluttonize on with time or food or being uh, taking the good things he's given and I think and I just fixate on those kind of things and all of a sudden I can find I'm spending hours thinking about good things that God gave while basically turning my back on him not looking to hope so so with that admission so I'm not talking down to anybody here there is this fight for faith we have been born again to a living hope but what do we do with it we tend it so number one here's a couple here's a couple statements in scripture talking about our hope the certainty number one we're called to unhope from riches and people and holidays and experiences and travel. 1 Timothy 6.17 says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides for us everything to enjoy. So there's an unhitching of your hope. Every morning when you wake up, you are Velcroed to false hope. Like all kinds of stuff that you think is going to float the boat, that's going to be the best thing ever, uh, or the worst thing ever. And the worst thing ever actually is just ruining the best thing ever. So you've got a best thing ever. It's always Velcro to you. So the first piece is this. We come to life. You have to have new life. You have to go to the Lord and say, God, I don't have inherent worth. I don't have righteousness. I never could have righteousness. I rest on the mercy of Jesus, right? Please give me new life. So he gives you new life, and you're a new life. You wake up, and you wake up, and you've just got false hopes stuck all over you. Actually, it's usually Velcro across your eyes. Things just captured your heart and your tensions, your emotions. So we remind ourselves of the gospel. Remember who we are. We have a new life and a new hope. And we say, God, those things, I really want food. I really want love. I really want these things. But these things are gifts. They're not my hope. Rip it off. Rip it off. Hold it. Let it become its rightful place, but it's not my hope. You are my hope. My eternity is with you. Your love that never fails me. 
You'll never turn your back on me. You'll never stop giving me grace. You are my hope. So pull it off, detach yourself. And in this case here, he talks to the rich in this present age, which by and large, that's all of us in this room, not to set our hope on the uncertainty of riches, your current crypto accounts, your 401ks, the things you have, your cars, your life, your family, your holidays. Don't set your hopes there. So undetach, unremove uh, um, these wonderful gifts of the Lord from the hope category because they're not hope, they're gifts. If you take gifts and allow them to be hope, they will be idols. They will blind you. They will pull your soul down. And so when you take God's good gifts and say thanks and run to your room and close the door, you are not going to be satisfied, are you? You're going to be fatigued and chubby and sad and depressed and shopping more and buying more. You're just going to do all those kind of things and you sit in your room fixating on the good gifts God gives and using them as hope. So number one, undetach these gifts from their hope category. Let them hold them as gifts. And number two, we're called to manually set our hope on Christ's promises. Same book, same chapter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, pull it off, don't hold there, and set hope there. Like, remind yourselves, get in the scriptures and in prayer, like, where is my hope? Jesus, you are my hope. Even above the promises you give, you are my hope. I am a God lover. I get to be with you forever. My hope is in you. And not only set it there, but then fight to keep that central in our minds. And Hebrews 3, 6 says this, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a, as a high priest, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope, boasting in our certainty. Hold fast. So remove the things that come over your eyes in the morning. Hold them as good gifts. Look, set your hope fully upon God and his grace. And number three, fight to stay there. Endure in that spot. Don't let the things come back in. So it's, it's cast and focused. Cast and focused. Walk, how do you do this? It's, this is that abiding in Jesus part. This is that walking in the spirit part we picked up out of Romans chapter 8. Constantly bring your minds back. I was reading yesterday morning in John chapter 1. How does, how does John the Baptist introduce Jesus or speak of Jesus? He goes, I baptize with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will immerse you into the Holy Spirit. Like where we now have this new life, we walk in the Spirit. We keep looking to Him, keep looking to Him, keep looking to Him. Not reference Him once a day at best, but keep looking to Him. Reading the Word of the Spirit, looking to the guidance of the Spirit and the life that He's given us. So number one, take gifts off the hope category. Get it off your face. Number two, set your hope on Jesus. And number three, endure stay there by abiding with christ the new life god has given us is one of coming certainty not of i, I wish it's true but it's us knowing it is true jesus is true and he's alive that's our hope if he was dead he couldn't carry out the promises but he's not dead he came back to life he is our living hope i'll finish off with this in romans 5, 15 13 says this may the god of certainty fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the holy spirit you may abound in certainty let's pray father please be with us in our short-mindedness lord i've just confessed 
to them my short-mindedness and how much I, I wrestled. And Father, there's been so many sweet days, Lord, where you've made this uh, wonderfully tasted and appreciated in my mind, Lord, where I've lived as a man of hope and certainty in Jesus. And there's been a lot of days where I haven't. And on the good days, you've loved me perfectly through the cross of Jesus. And on the bad days, you've loved me perfectly through the cross of Jesus. And I thank you forever for that. I thank you for my justification. I thank you for my adoption. I thank you for the certainty of all this. And I pray, Father, for all of us, Lord, that you would move us along, conform us into the image of Jesus, teaching us to rejoice in this certainty, teaching us to, to fight against allowing our hope to naturally settle into the things of our flesh and taking your gifts and making them hopes and fixating and, and uh, dishonoring you, displeasing you, hurting our friends and family, the people that need you so badly. So for the sake of them too, Lord, teach us to delight in Jesus so that we can point them to the delight of Jesus and we can show them how you've been delightful and that you're not theoretically the fountain of living water, but we've experienced that. And you've shaped us into joy and peace and the fruits of the Spirit. So, Father, I pray that you would honor and glorify your name in our hearts, that you would lift up the hope of Jesus, and you would help us through this week. Um, those of us that are six years old, to those of us that are 84 years old, um, Father, please remind us of Jesus being our certainty. He is our future. He is alive. And please, Father, help us in this new life you've given us to live in the realities of a vivid life and a vivid hope so that even to the point and later on in this book, Father, where you've said people would look and see that certainty in us and they would ask for a reason for the certainty that is in us. So, Father, please do this great work of your spirit. Do this work of hope in us. Strengthen our faith. Cast our eyes on you. Father, we love you. In Christ's name. Amen.